Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, your adoption show. I'm April Fallon. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. I'm your host, April Fallon. If you're new to Adoption Now, we are a nonprofit and we share adoption stories from the perspective of birth parents, adoptees, and adoptive parents. Thank you all for your donations to help keep the show going. And thank you for checking out the new website. AdoptionNowPodcast.com is a place that you can find all of our episodes, make donations, check out our store, and just make adoption connections. My husband and I have four children through adoption, so we know firsthand the joys and challenges of the adoption journey, and this show really does talk about it all. Okay, if you're looking to adopt through the foster care system, this episode is for you. Today, we have the president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Rita has worked for more than 30 years on behalf of abused, neglected, and vulnerable children. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption provides leadership for local, state, and national efforts to find permanent families for the, listen to this, for the 140,000 children waiting in the United States foster care system. That's unbelievable. Rita, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so good to talk to you. I'm glad to be with you. I am so honored that you're here. And I want to talk about the work that you have done and the work that you are doing right now. But first, let's talk about this foundation and how it was started. Dave Thomas, who started the restaurant chain that we all know, Wendy's, he was adopted. Tell us his story. That's right. He was. Um, and, and um, you know, his story early on very much mirrors our children in the foster care system waiting to be adopted, even though he was adopted. So he was adopted as an infant. He spent a little bit of time in foster care before he was adopted, but still as, as an infant. Um, but his adoptive mother passed away when he was very young. His adoptive father was a bit of an itinerant worker, so moving from place to place. And he was um, often raised by his grandmother, Minnie. And he went through so much in that sort of transitional part of his childhood that at age 16, he dropped out of school and decided to strike out on his own. And and at that point, um, said he was going to, you know, he was very attracted to the the world of of food and restaurants, and he was going to create the best burger ever. And well, he ended up doing that. But interestingly, he still credits his family for his success. He understood the value of family. And yet this notion of being raised by a grandparent, of moving from place to place, of leaving home at an early age, of having to figure out life on your own, essentially, is very much what our children in foster care experience when they're waiting to be adopted. So when, as he was nearing the end of his active career as CEO of the Wendy's company, he very much wanted to put in place what was um, in the genetic makeup of, of the Wendy's company, and that's giving back to the community. And went back to what he knew best, this notion of adoption. But when he created the foundation in 1992, what we didn't have was a robust conversation nationally about foster care, foster care adoption system. There were lots of myths and misperceptions that that circled around these kids. So he decided that's where the niche would be, where they would um, create a foundation in order to address this cause, this issue of children in foster care waiting to be adopted. Interestingly, 
he made it a national nonprofit public charity one so that we could address all across the United States. And actually, we have a, a foundation in Canada as well, so U.S. and Canada. Um, but he didn't set it up as a corporate foundation that just got a steady feed of, of, of funds from the, from the corporation or as a family foundation that was built on an endowment. He created it as a nonprofit organization very wisely so that we would need to be out there talking about this cause, doing something on behalf of this cause in order to raise funds to do the work. So it, it was this wonderful mix of personal passion, personal lived experience from his own sense of what family was to creating a foundation to address the, the policy, the practice, and, and the um, awareness of foster care adoption in the United States and Canada. I think that his story just proves if you have one person that loves you and takes care of you and believes in you, you can do amazing things. And what I'm surprised about is how many children don't even have that one person. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And his he he talks about his grandma or talked about his grandma Minnie a lot. We um, sadly lost him in in uh, 2000. Uh, and one, but, um, you know, talked about his grandma, Minnie, but, but really, you know, understood what his father had to go through as well. But it, it, indeed, it was that grandparent. And so many of our children, whether they're in foster care or not, um, are being raised or being tended to by grandparents now, even as it was um, when he was growing up. A lot of people think that they have to have a perfect family to adopt. And that's just not true. No, it's not true. Um, and, and in fact, the, the face of, of adopting has been changing so much over the past couple of decades. And again, I'm speaking from just that, that vantage point of foster care adoption. Of course, there are other kinds of adoption, international adoption and domestic infant adoption, but our focus is foster care adoption. And, and now, um, you don't have to be a, a two-parent um, a heterosexual family with a large home and, and, and some sense of wealth in order to adopt. You can be a single parent. You can be a, a, a same-sex couple. Um, you can live in an apartment. You can, um, uh, you know, have, have, you know, the kind of wages that, that um, can support a family, but they wouldn't be considered uh, upper middle class or wealthy by any means. In other words, what it takes is someone who has the commitment, who has the means to support a child, who understands what these children have experienced, the grief and loss and trauma of abuse and neglect and abandonment, and can take them into their home knowing that this is a forever contract. This isn't just a test. It's a forever contract as if that child had been born to them. But it's really about the willingness to um, to 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 take a child, take who, take them where they are, understand who they are, and provide a safe, loving, and permanent home. Tell us how you got involved. Sure. You know, I, I, I'm not an adoptive parent, and I wasn't adopted, um, but I was one of those kids that came out, kick, much to my parents' dismay, came out kicking and screaming, that's not fair. You know, whenever it had to do with in my mind, some perceived injustice for a child. But that stuck with me as I grew up. Um, and when I had my first daughter, um, there was an instant, she was an infant, there was an instance of, um, and I was on a completely different um, uh, track, uh, but there was an instance of 
uh, severe abuse with that child and the child ended up passing away. And I was just primed at that point to say, wait a minute, you know, I had this infant at home. How could anybody, how could this happen? How could we not have protected this child? So I immediately started volunteering with what, um, my local um, chapter of the, what was then the National Committee to Prevent Child Abuse. And that volunteer position helped me move into a paid position and learn everything I could about the dynamics of abuse and neglect, of, of how we do or don't support families that need support, of what happens to these children as they move into a foster care system and then potentially move back home. And from that position, I was able to um, move nearly a decade later into the executive director position of the court-appointed special advocates program here in Columbus, Ohio. The Day Thomas Foundation for Adoption is located in Columbus, Ohio. Um, and, and that was that next stage of when we haven't prevented abuse with a child, how do we make sure we have the best interest advocates for those children in court? Someone who speaks out for what's best for that child and can tell a judge, um, here's what we think should happen based on our deep research in our relationship with that child. And so and at that stage, for again, about another decade, I learned the ins and outs of what happens in the court system and, and who are all the players in a child's case once they're involved in the legal system, which is, you know, by nature, um, um, contentious. And, and how do we support parents and how do we support children? And then had the opportunity um, when the position here at the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption opened to um, apply for and was blessed to, 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 to be selected for this position, which for me kind of feels full circle. Don't know if we're at that full circle yet, but feels full circle of, um, all right, prevention, intervention moves these children at, into a status of essentially legal orphans in this country. The court decides, yes, uh, parental rights will be permanently severed from this child, and now it's up to agencies to find a, a substitute and permanent family. And so the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption works just on that, on how do we move these children who have been freed for adoption quickly and effectively and safely into permanent homes. So it's been, it's been I suspect that that path perhaps was, was planned out more than I realized, but it's been one of those um, for, for me, a professional circumstance of right place, right time, of learning, of, of having mentors and colleagues and relationships that seem to move from one stage to another um, and ended up here where we've had just an incredible opportunity to work um, across the U.S. and Canada on behalf of children waiting to be adopted. So you have a baby and another baby passes away. And you just recognized that vulnerability of children and decided to do something about that. And what I love about that part of your story is who would have known that this small child that passed away would be the very thing that would change your life. And in that, you would look at your own child and say, I have to do something for other children, not just the children that I have, but going out there and making a difference. Tell us about... Wendy's wonderful kids. Sure. So part of the evolution of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption has been this work early on in 1992 and for about the first 10 years, we were very focused on simply raising awareness, public service announcements, education, conversations, raising awareness about the now 113,000 children in this country who are waiting to be adopted and the 30,000 children in 
in Canada are waiting to be adopted. So just raising awareness, engaging the public in a conversation. Um, why, what do you know about the child welfare system? And do you know that you can become a foster parent, that you can become an adoptive parent? But around 2001, 2002, we said, you know, this is wonderful. We need to keep raising awareness. But we also need to move a little bit away from awareness and into action because 20,000 children were turning 18 every year who had been freed for adoption. They were in foster care or some sort of substitute placement, and um, they were turning 18 and they were not getting adopted. And, and, and we began to realize that there's something wrong here, and perhaps this is um, a niche that the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption needs to step into to be value-added to a system. Uh, can we find a way to address this vulnerable population of children who are at risk of aging out of care? Tell us the stats of children that age out. What happens to them? Yeah, and again, I, I want to be careful because it's not because they're bad kids, right? It's because they don't have the safety net and support of a family. But here's what we know based on research. About one in five youth that first year after they age out of care will be homeless. And those are the ones we know about. Um, so many more are couch surfing or figuring out a way and they don't become part of a system that counts how many of them are, are, are homeless. So one in five, 20%. Only about 50% of these children who age out of care will be employed at age 24. Less than 3% will earn a college degree. We know that about 70% of former female foster youth will be pregnant by age 21. That's not bad in and of itself, but it's a challenge, again, if they don't have family surrounding them, if they, don't, if they haven't had role models to say, here's how you care for an infant or, or here are services that you need. Um, and so these, these horrible statistics about negative outcomes for these kids can be, can be diverted immediately if we simply do what we're supposed to do and find these children um, a safe, supportive, permanent family that they can count on, that they can come back to if they've, you know, stumbled and lost a job or their car breaks down or, or they just don't even know where to go in, in terms of trying to find a job or finding a home. So um, we, need to, we, need to, we need to stop that 20,000 children year over year over year. And that's what the, the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program began to address. Um, and we did that by looking at, well, what are some of the emerging best practices for these children? What, what do agencies do if they have a caseload of, say, 200 in their, in their, in their community or in their agency that are close to turning 18 and the, and, or they're 16, 17? You know, how do, how do they um, recruit families for these kids? And, and what we found is a couple of things. We asked dozens and dozens of agencies, and they said, well, you know, we don't have the financial or the human resources to deal with this, this population of children. They're in a foster home. They're steady. They'll be fine. You know, and they just could only see to that end of the 18 age. Uh, and they're back at the beginning triaging other cases coming into, into their agency. And so, again, we looked at emerging best practices, and we found some, and we said, great, then here's where we can be value-added. We can raise more money. We can find the funding. Um, we can create a model that's based on some existing best practices to say, here's something, here's a way for you to say, here's how I can get these children adopted and pay attention to them. So we set up a pilot project in 2004 and said, we'll give grants. We're a grant-making organization. To, or, to any public or private adoption agency that will follow this model we've created, we'll give a grant to hire a full-time adoption professional that will focus on a very small caseload of these children rather than 40 or 50 kids. 
12 to 15. They have to meet with the child on a regular basis. They have to do a deep dive into the child's case file. They have to learn everyone in the child's case. Um, and by doing all of this work, and they have the time to do the work, and they can build a relationship with this child, what they will learn is, there are extended family members. There are former foster parents. There are professionals that surround these children, dozens and dozens, teachers and therapists and, and attorneys, people that could be potential adoptive parents. Sometimes even the family situation has changed drastically and the, the, the family of origin is safe for this family, for this child now. So the recruiter um, does that work. And we call it Wendy's Wonderful Kids because we went to our Wendy's partners, franchisees and suppliers and the corporate office and said, if you help us raise more funds, we can fund these recruiters across the nation. They can work on behalf of these children. They can get them adopted. Very quickly, from about 2004 to 2007, we saw significant turnaround of numbers of children, not because it was really magic, but because we were allowing social workers, one, to do good social work because they had the time, and two, they were focusing on children whose case files said this child is unadoptable. They're too old. They're too damaged. They're too dangerous. They're too something, but they're not able to live with a, with a family when we knew that was wrong. Um, and so we grew the program fairly quickly. We put in place a rigorous evaluation from 2007 to 2011 to make sure that on an evaluation basis, on an um, on, on a apples-to-apples basis, that this program actually works. And what we found in 2011 is that it not only works, but it works exactly for that target population that we were focusing on, teenagers, children in sibling groups, children with special needs those children most at risk of aging out of care. And it, it, what we found is when a child is served by Wendy's Wonderful Kids, they're up to three times more likely to be adopted than any other business as usual. And so we called it Wendy's Wonderful Kids to celebrate the fact that our Wendy's folks stepped in and helped us fundraise in a big way. Um, we had the, 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 the rigorous evaluation that showed that it works. And so now we're taking this program to scale across all 50 states, D.C., and hopefully we're in about um, 16 states now, but the goal is to have it scaled soon and across Canada as well. So it's, 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 it's been this lovely evolution of a program that simply addressed a gap, a need, um, and addressed the myths and misperceptions about teenagers and about children in sibling groups and about children with special needs rather than saying, well, they'll be fine on their own at 18 or they'll need to be institutionalized or, you know, they just need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and, and become adults quickly. We, we want to dismiss all of that and say, no, no matter what age, no matter what their background, no matter what their journey in child welfare has been, every child deserves a family and Wendy's Wonderful Kids addresses that. Tell us your favorite story. Oh, there are so many. You know, there are so many, but but um, a couple come to mind. One, and it, it talks about how this program really works. There was this one young guy that was working with his recruiter and was very shy. Um, and it took her a while to build up a trusting relationship. But when, when they finally got to that stage, he kept talking about this this other young man in his life, his best friend, his best friend, his best friend. And he loved doing things with his best friend, but he didn't want to share that he was a foster kid or that he was waiting to be adopted. And so the recruiter began to dig a little bit and made a connection with the best friend's family. They didn't know he was he was waiting to be adopted. Um, long story short, she made a match between this child and the best friend's family. They ended up adopting him. But the the, the best part of this is is when they were in court, 
and the judge is ready to say, you know, we want to make this a permanent legal family. He does the right thing by asking children, those that, that are old enough to respond, you know, what do you think about this? What are your feelings about this? Are you okay with this adoption? And the judge had to prod this little guy and prod him. He was maybe nine, had to keep, you know, he wanted to get an answer out of him if he could, but he didn't want to intimidate him. And finally, you know, when the judge asked one more time before giving up, he said, you know, what's the best thing about this adopted family that you can tell me? And and he, he the little guy looked up and looked at the judge and said, now my best friend is also my brother. I mean, that's the, that's the wonder of this program. This was a kid at age nine. We know from research that by the time a child turns nine in foster care, their likelihood of being adopted decreases significantly. So this little guy was right on the path of aging out of foster care, and yet now he was with the kind of family that um, will support him forever and that he was comfortable with. There's so many other stories where in a child's case file it says, you know, um, they're on they're on tons of medications. They don't believe that this child will advance educationally. Um, you know that uh, probably on the path to institutionalization, we get them a family who understands their special needs, and suddenly we see a complete turnaround. They, they're they're weaned off medication. They're able to advance through school. Uh, we have a, a story of a young autistic boy, CJ, who when um, his uh, adoptive family met him at age eight. He was nonverbal and not toilet trained, sitting at the back of the class with no one paying attention to him. The uh, mom, uh, D, the mom, um, adopted CJ, and within within a, a relatively short period of time, and understand she had worked with children with disabilities, so she understood his needs, understood what he needed. Um, uh, again, long story short, he graduated from high school. He was on the cross country team. He's employed. And he loves to sing. He and Dee are doing duets with local community shows. So from a child that was just left in the back of the room with severe autism-related issues and severe trauma from having been horribly abused in foster homes, he's now as best as he can be and as thriving as he can be with with the guidance of, of a loving mother. Wow, that's amazing. I I know that when people hear this, they're going to be inspired. In fact, some people are even on a list right now, but thinking maybe I should get involved in foster care. Maybe this is something for me. How can they find out more information? Absolutely. Um, Two ways with the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Certainly going on our website, davethomasfoundation.org and drill through all the resource section because all kinds of materials, videos of families who have come together through foster care adoption and a really useful guide, a beginner's guide to adoption that just takes you through the basic steps. What can I expect? What do I need to do? Um, How do I even get into this process? If they'd like a warm voice, we have an 800 line uh, that's answered during uh, Eastern time business hours. Um, and, And that's, 800-ASK-A-S-K-D-T-F-A, or even if they're in, you know, their community and they don't know what organization, they're they're ready for that next step, but they're not sure what organization to reach out to. We've got a list of of the Wendy's Wonderful Kids sites that we found, or we can talk to them and connect them to agencies that we know in their community as well. And you do offer support after adoption as well. I think that's really important because sometimes... It's challenging when you bring home a child and you offer that support post-adoption, correct? 
we, we're starting to, to develop a program to do that. What we do know is that two, two ways that we go about this right now, but we're, we're going to get, um, I think, better at it as an agency as well. But um, the Wendy's Wonderful Kids recruiters, although their job supposedly ends when the child is adopted because they've developed a relationship with the child and the family, they are that best first source of referrals. And in fact, prior to the adoption, what they will do is talk to the families about you know, here are potential needs you might have. You might not recognize that for a year or two, but these are children who have suffered incredible grief, loss, and trauma. Sometimes behaviors manifest as a child is triggered or grapples with what has happened in their life and maybe not be that first week or that first year in a family. And so they get the, them connected early on before the adoption, but tend to be a, a resource for them even post-adoption. Um, the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption funds a number of organizations that are really getting very specific about here's how we handle uh, post-adoption needs for children. In fact, in, in three states right now, we're looking at um, how can you work with our Wendy's Wonderful Kids families that have been adopted with post-adoption resources. So that's only three small areas in three states, but we're, we just went through some strategic planning here, and we hope to really significantly grow either elevating existing best practices or researching and creating really good best practices for post-adoption resources for, for families that not just come together through Wendy's Wonderful Kids, but any family that might need that. And again, another example is we fund a great organization out of Maryland that trains adoption-competent mental health providers. It's not good enough to just go to a therapist that may be a generalist um, if they don't know about the dynamics of abuse and neglect and grief and loss. And so we're getting thousands and thousands of therapists trained in adoption competency across the nation, and we can make referrals to those organizations as well. That is so great. Rita, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh my gosh, it was my pleasure. Obviously, I could talk about this all day. So I appreciate you spending time on this. And, and again, if anybody has any questions or, or would like to connect with us, um, feel free to reach out. We love talking about this and helping folks make that next step. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our new website, adoptionnowpodcast.com. We'll have all the information from this episode there. Thanks for joining us on your adoption show. See you next episode. 